Welcome to the Ship Gold Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, October 13th. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. Thanks for tuning in. I have got some awesome news for you. The inflation war is over. We won at very little cost. Pop the champagne, ladies and gentlemen. Inflation is dead. The economy is roaring. Everything is great. You know how I know this? Paul Krugman said so. And Paul Krugman can't be wrong. I mean, after all, he's a Nobel Prize economist, right? Krugman declared victory in the inflation war on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. And by the way, he included a graph. That's how I'm even more extra sure he's right. I mean, it's a graph. Graphs don't lie. Especially graphs posted on social media by Nobel Prize winning economists. The graph shows inflation at just below 2%. That's based on a six-month change in the annual. That's the mythical Fed target, right? So, boom! Take that, Meharry. Take that, Schiff. Y'all kept saying the Fed couldn't win this thing without wrecking the economy. But it won. The economy isn't wrecked. And did I mention there's a graph? But, but wait a second. Didn't the CPI just come out a lot higher than 2%? Better recheck that graph. Ooh. Hmm. It's CPI. X, food, energy, shelter, and used cars. So basically, what Krugman is telling us is you don't have to worry about price inflation as long as you avoid buying food, using any energy, and paying rent or a mortgage. How ironic that he posted this on X, because his graph is X everything. I mean, you know, if you X out some other stuff, like you could X out everything, just don't buy anything at all, inflation is zero. So there you go. Have I ever mentioned that Krugman is nothing but a political hack? His whole job at the New York Times is to spin economic data to boost Democrats. You know, he was jonesing for a job in the Clinton administration back in the day, but Donnie derailed that dream. But Krugman doesn't do economics. I mean, he may have at one time. His work, his actual Nobel Prize work is is pretty solid. But what he does at the New York Times, what he does on Twitter, what he does today, it's not economics. It's political spin. It's propaganda. And I predict that this tweet or X post or whatever you call it, It's not going to age well. Kind of like his prediction that the internet would have no more impact on the economy than the fax machine. Yes, he actually said that back in the 90s. You know, this uh, post on X also reveals the level of disdain the political class has for the average person. They think you're stupid. And they don't really care if you're struggling. I mean, you would think that as a lefty, Krugman's definitely a lefty, you would think he he would have some concern and compassion for the little guy, right? That's what the left is all about. And yet here he is telling you that you shouldn't be upset or worried about price inflation because it's not that bad if you don't 
have to spend any money on, you know, the necessities. Now, fortunately, we can look at the CPI data ourselves, and we don't have to depend on the ravings of a political hack to discern what's actually going on. In fact, you know what's going on from your real life, right? You go to the grocery store, you pay a mortgage, or you pay rent, you have to buy gas for your car, so you know what's going on. You know inflation, price inflation isn't dead. So, in a nutshell, CPI was hotter than expected, and if you follow such things, you'll recognize this is a reoccurring theme. The September CPI gave us another variation on that tune, and it should once again remind us that the Federal Reserve is nowhere near its 2% target. I mean, unless you strip everything out, right? So looking at the, uh, the the data for September, consumer prices rose 0.4% month-on-month in September. Now, that's a pretty hefty gain. The expectation was for a 0.3% increase. And the headline annual CPI that you see bandied about in the media, that was up 3.7%. And that's the same rate as we had in August. So no change in the uh, annual CPI. And the expectation was that we'd have a slight drop down to 3.6%. Now, for August, the narrative was that CPI just went up because gas prices went up. And that was certainly a big factor. But CPI jumped in September despite moderating energy prices. Uh, Gasoline prices did rise another 2.1% month on month. So a pretty big increase in gasoline prices or gasoline prices. But that pales in comparison to the 10% plus increase that we had in August. And yet that headline CP number didn't headline. I can't talk today. It's Friday the 13th. The headline CPI number didn't budge. Even factoring out gasoline and food costs, we continue to see inflationary pressure. Now, again, normal people can't just factor out food and energy. Uh, and, And that's why this is a little bit, I don't know, kind of makes you angry, doesn't it? I mean, that they just... It's like we have this academic sterile data that says one thing, and we have real life that says another, and they want to ignore real life. Um, Anyway, uh, core CPI is a thing, and core CPI is considered a better gauge of price inflation because it factors out food and energy, and in some sense, it, it probably does. You have to consider what price inflation is. Price inflation is simply rising prices, right? So uh, Hamas and Israel get into it, oil prices rise, right? That's not actual inflation. It's not monetary inflation, but it is price inflation. It causes prices to go up. What we're primarily concerned about is monetary inflation, the increase in the money supply. That increase in the money supply drives up all prices. So Oil prices will go up due to monetary inflation. They may go up a lot more due to supply shocks or, you know, excess demand, whatever's going on. So you kind of have to separate those things out. And I've talked before about how we've just turned inflation, that word, 
to mean just price inflation. So there's really not any way to talk about monetary inflation. And that's really the insidious thing that the government's doing to us, right? The government is increasing the money supply. It's devaluing our money. It's decreasing our purchasing power. And that is somewhat covered up by, you know, normal price fluctuations that you get because of supply and demand and, and you know, all of the things that go on in the economy. So, you know, my big concern is government-created inflation, which drives price inflation. So, to just put it simply, you have all prices rising a certain amount because of monetary inflation. And then on top of that, you have changes in price that are due to other economic factors. And, you know, if the other economic factors are driving prices down, that can totally obscure price inflation. Because in that case, prices might look like they're dropping. It might look like inflation, quote unquote, is going down. But actually, in actuality, you're just... The the inflation caused by monetary inflation is just being covered up by decreasing prices. Anyway, that was a, a bit of an aside, but I, I think it's important to understand that. So that's why, from an economic standpoint, core inflation does kind of make sense because the core strips out gasoline and food, which is more volatile. But gasoline and food prices are still going up, right? That still matters to us. And the fact of the matter is, while fuel prices may be rising because of other factors in the economy, there's still that underlying monetary inflation that is also driving them higher. So, core CPI. Um, it was uh, 0.3% month-on-month for the second straight month, and that was a tick higher than the 0.2 increase that we saw in June and July. Uh, the annual core CPI was 4.1%. That was down uh, from 4.3%. Now, the mainstream pundits point to this core CPI as evidence that inflation is really cooling, even though based on the headline numbers, it isn't. But the drop in annual core CPI right now is largely a function of math, as large increases in monthly core from last year are rolling out of the calculations. We saw the same thing happen over the summer when the biggest monthly CPI jumps dropped out of the annual calculation and the headline rate plunged. That's happening now with core. If you look back, you'll see that the core monthly Uh, numbers moderated more slowly than the annual CPI number. So we're seeing that mathematical change where those big numbers are dropping out. So that makes the core CPI drop lower and lower. At some point, you're going to get to the point where those big numbers are out and you'll you'll stop seeing these drops in the core. Um, Looking at the... uh, monthly increase so far in 2023 kind of reveals that core CPI remains sticky. So looking back, core CPI was 0.4% in January. It was 0.5% in February, 0.4% in March, 0.4% in April, uh, 0.4% in May. And then it dropped down to 0.2% in June and July, and then popped back up to 0.3% in August and September. If you average that out, that's about 0.34% per month, and that annualizes to 4.1% annually. So that's still more than double the Fed's 2% target. 
And if you annualize just the last two months, core CPI would remain elevated at 3.6%, which also is not 2%. So basically what I'm saying here is that if, if you look at the year, you know, start in January, the averages, if it just continues the way it is, nowhere near 2%. And even if you take this relatively modest 0.3% and annualize that out over a year, still way above 2%. To put the monthly core CPI increase in perspective, you need to average just under 0.17 to hit the 2% annual target. So we're way above that. The point being is that you can look at the trends and you can say one thing, you know, if you look at it from a year ago, uh, if you look at it from the last four months, you could maybe argue that it's moderating. But the bottom line is, Core CPI, no matter how you slice this or dice it, still way above 2%. And 2% is supposedly where we're going, right? That's where we're supposed to run the victory lap. That's why Krugman had to X out not only food and energy, but also shelter and used cars for some weird reason for this, you know, so-called super core, uh, this super core number that they like to use. Have you noticed the government people and, and their lackeys? They like to use whatever metric makes things look better, right? So if uh, CPI is high, we'll look at core. And if core is still too high, we'll make up a new thing called super core, which has absolutely no correlation with real life. Um, so that's why Krugman, you know, he goes even further and strips out core. Now, the disclaimer that regular listeners knew was coming. Inflation, price inflation, is much worse than any of this government data suggests. And I've said this a million times. The CPI uses a formula that understates the actual rise in prices. Right? This is all based on formulas and assumptions and hedonics and all this stuff. So if you go back to the formula that was used in the 1970s, CPI is closer to double those official numbers. So, you know, we're looking at not 3.6%, but we're looking at something, you know, close to 8. So, much worse than the numbers will tell you, but you know, we'll go with the government data for our discussion since that's what they give us. It's still bad uh, based on the government data. So, looking more deeply into the data, however flawed, shelter costs were a big factor in the overall CPI increase. Shelter was up 0.6% for the month and 7.2% year-on-year. Um, that big month-on-month shelter cost rise actually broke a trend of moderating prices that had been in place since May. Now, since shelter makes up one-third of the CPI, this would probably be a good time to do a refresher on how the BLS calculates shelter costs. And you'll be shocked to learn that it understates the cost of housing. So let's start with rent. The BLS uses a calculation called rent of primary residence to come up with this number. So uh, they basically do a survey, and they ask people who are renting, what is the final or what is the rental charge to your household for this unit, including any extra charges for garage and parking facilities? What period of time does this cover? So they're basically gauging the price of rent on a survey. 
right? This makes up 7.6% of the overall CPI formula. So here's an example of just how much this estimate understates reality. Go back to August 2021. Rent of primary residence rose 0.3% in that CPI calculation. But if you go to apartment list rental guide, rents actually rose 2.1% in that same month. Huge discrepancy. It's not hard to understand why this formulation understates rents. The survey just tells you how much current renters are paying. But it doesn't reveal how much the landlord would charge a new renter moving in today. Right? The number understates rising rents, especially if rents are sharply increasing quickly. Obviously, if Joe moves out, the landlord is going to charge Jimmy more to reflect the current market. So, first off, it's just based on an on a opinion poll, and it doesn't really reflect reality. We see the same uh, disconnect between CPI measures for home ownership and the actual cost of buying a home. For the, the home ownership, they use this thing called owner's equivalent rent of residence. And this is supposed to for some reason, they think this reflects the cost of home ownership. And this number actually contributes almost 25% of the overall CPI. The Bureau of Labor Statistics determines this number in a survey asking homeowners, quote, if someone were to rent your home today, how much do you think it would rent for monthly unfurnished without utilities? This is literally nothing more than the opinion of the homeowner. It has virtually no correlation with the actual cost of buying a home, right? Which is a function of housing prices and mortgage rates. So, what I'm getting at here is shelter costs are still rising rapidly, even based on a formula that drastically understates how much it costs to keep a roof over your head. But that doesn't really matter because you can just strip shelter out of the calculation and and ignore it completely. So here's another bad sign. uh, Services, and this is minus energy services, also charted a big jump. Uh, It was up 0.6% on a monthly basis. Service prices are considered a leading indicator of future price inflation. So the fact that we had this big jump in uh, the services number that's, that's not a good sign if you're looking at the trajectory of price inflation. And of course, all of this is impacting you and me and everybody else, every normal person. The money that we earn is buying less. Average hourly earnings were up 0.2% in September. Yippee, a little raise. Unfortunately, price inflation ate it all up and then some, so Real earnings were actually down 0.2%. And this is another theme that we've seen consistently. People are getting raises. They're getting more money. Price inflation is pushing into the labor market and pushing wages up, but not as quickly as prices are rising. So we're seeing this, this downward degradation of purchasing power, of actual earnings. I have a solution for you, though. Stop spending money on food, energy, and shelter. Problem solved. You're welcome. The bad news doesn't end with the CPI report. 
on Wednesday, producer price data came out, and this reflects the prices companies pay to produce goods and services. So sometimes you'll hear this um, termed as wholesale inflation. The mainstream doesn't pay nearly as much attention to PPI as it does CPI, but it really should because the PPI is a leading indicator of future consumer price inflation. So, producer prices were up 0.5% in September, and that pushed the annual PPI to 2.2%. That's the highest level since April. Uh, And keeping with the hotter-than-expected theme, the consensus projection was for a 0.3% increase. So, pretty big miss on the projection. Over the last 12 months, the increase in producer prices had actually slowed. It went as low as 0.2% in June, but PPI has been on the rise ever since. If we look at core PPI, uh, that was up 0.3% versus a forecast for 0.2%. Prices for final demand uh, goods surged 0.9% on the month. So it's costing a lot more to produce stuff. And uh, this was primarily driven by a 4%, uh, 5.4% increase in gas prices. But wholesale food prices also charted a significant gain of 0.9%. Uh, prices for final demand services, it was uh, a little more muted. It increased by 0.3%. Now, as I've already mentioned, producer prices are generally considered a leading indicator of rising CPI because consumer prices typically lag behind producer prices. It's pretty logical, really. Before a business can pass on higher costs to their customers, they have to experience those higher costs for themselves. So you will see the impact of rising prices, of price inflation at the producer level, and then eventually it moves into consumer prices. As one economist told CNBC on Wednesday, the September PPI report, quote, suggests we haven't seen the end of sticky inflation and high interest rates. So that dude is at odds with Krugman. Hmm. I thought the war was over. Guess not. So on Thursday, uh, market reaction to the CPI report, I would term it is pretty muted, especially early on. Uh, But then investors started worrying about interest rates again, and as the day wore on, uh, we started to see some sell-off action in the markets. Gold lost about $16 on the day. It was at $18.84 Thursday morning before the CPI report, and uh, gold closed at about $18.68 on Thursday evening. Now, You'll notice if you track the gold prices week to week, 1884, that was a pretty nice boost uh, for the week. And this was primarily due to safe haven buying due to the horrible situation in the Middle East. Uh, Keep in mind that earlier this month, gold was down as as low as 1820 an ounce. And we were talking about possibly testing $1,800. Now, it's going to be interesting to see how markets move today uh, as people have had some time to digest the report. Um, I saw one early morning article this morning that already indicates uh, that that people are kind of having that more dovish turn. Uh, They're focusing on the moderating core inflation and the likelihood that the Fed keeps rates unchanged in November. Uh, 
So early this morning, gold was up over 20 bucks uh, to just over 1888. Uh, of course, that's primarily due to overseas trading uh, in, in Asia and Europe. Nevertheless, we, we've seen a rally in gold early this morning. We'll see if that holds. A lot of things in play for gold right now. Dollar strength. Had a lot of dollar strength yesterday, um, uh, indicating that currency traders expect interest rates to stay higher for longer. Uh, I mentioned the stock market. It sold off, or maybe I didn't mention it, but the stock market did sell off yesterday. The Dow lost about... Uh, 0.5%. The NASDAQ dipped a little further, uh, losing about 0.6%. So really no shock on any of that. That's how the markets have reacted to hotter than expected inflation data for months, right? They freak out for a few days, and then they settle back into the everything is fine. Uh, the Fed's going to be cutting rates soon narrative. I think a lot of people must listen to Paul Krugman. Um and we're already kind of seeing that moderation, right? Uh, we had the rally in gold this morning and in this article talking about, oh, we're focusing on core inflation and really inflation's not that bad despite the headline number. So, you know, pretty pretty typical of, of the way the markets have reacted over the last several months. And, and I've said this before, I don't think you're going to see a drastic change until something breaks in the economy or the Fed takes a drastic step. This stuff takes a long time to play out. You know, I, I think that's important to remember. We live in this microwave world where everybody thinks everything should happen in 30 seconds, and it just doesn't work that way. Um, I've said this before. That I think the Fed is backed into a corner here. I mean, they haven't said so publicly, but the central bankers would almost certainly like to ease off of the interest rate gas pedal, right? They know the economy is riddled with debt. They know it can't function in a high interest rate environment over the long term. On the other hand, the Fed can't plausibly loosen monetary policy with price inflation more than double the mythical 2% target. And, you know, maybe that's why Paul Krugman is out there touting this, this victory, because he's got to recognize this too, right? Keynesians love stimulus, right? They love money printing. They love government spending because they think that's what makes the economy tick. Um, and I guess it does in a fake way, you know, just like heroin makes the addict tick. But, um, you know, that's kind of the, the, the mindset that a lot of these folks have. They want the easy money and the low interest rates. Inflation is in the way. They need to push it out of the way so that rates can be cut and so that we can have easy monetary policy, which ironically is monetary inflation, which leads to price inflation, right? Um, but regardless, um, I, I think the, the Fed, again, they can't plausibly loosen until we actually see some progress. Um, and the markets remain pretty sanguine. They seem to believe that the Fed is finished hiking, if not close, and they also believe the central bank will start cutting rates in the near future, and there won't be a recession. This is the underlying narrative. You see little changes in emotion you know, with, uh, with data releases like the CPI report, but that's kind of where we are right now. People believe inflation is basically beat, the economy is going to be fine, and interest rates are going to come down soon. I don't think any of that's going to happen or much of any of it, but that's just me. I'll be honest, though. I do kind of understand why people think the Fed has got inflation under control. I mean, you can make the case that it's at least coming down based on the numbers. 
even if there's no indication that 2% is on the horizon, price inflation has moderated, right? There's no doubt about that. So I, I kind of get that people would would have this sense that price inflation it's a problem of last year and you know it's still sticky there's still some issues but but basically we we've, we've got this thing under control what i can't fathom is how people think the economy isn't going to crack under the weight of these interest rates given the massive levels of debt out there consumer debt corporate debt government debt I mean, we're piled up with debt. I just saw an article today that that global debt is at record levels. So we have all this debt, and we have a high interest rate. So that doesn't work. And, and I guess it's just the assumption that since we got interest rates at over 5%, and nothing's broken, everything's going to be fine. Um, first off, we have seen something break, right? We, we saw the financial crisis, the banking crisis back in March, that was a function of high interest rates. That was the first thing to crack, and that's still bubbling under the surface. Banks are still borrowing from the Fed's bailout program, Uh, so, you know, months later. So that's still there, but something else is going to break. It's just a matter of time. It takes time. I've talked about the timeline for the 2008 crisis over and over again. It took almost two years from the point that the Fed actually started cutting rates. So hit the peak, they were cutting rates, and it was like a year and a half later that the economy started to crack. So you can't expect these things to happen overnight. Um, You know, a long fuse can burn for a long time before it gets to the powder keg. But once that fuse is lit, at some point, there's going to be an explosion. Speaking of long fuses, have you heard about the national debt? It's $33 trillion now, right? Oh, wait, you blinked. It's $33.5 trillion now. No joke. 20 days. That's how long it took for the Biden administration to add another half a trillion dollars to the national debt. $500 billion of new debt in 20 days. Bidenomics certainly requires a lot of borrowing and spending. Now, to be fair, it's not just Biden. All of the administrations spend like this. Donald did it too. But Joe is in charge now, and he keeps bragging about Bidenomics, so I don't feel guilty at all picking on him. Now, supposedly we have this roaring economy, right? Or at least a strong economy. You know, that's what we keep hearing over and over again. That's why we're, we're, we're still at 5% interest rates because the economy is strong. Well, generally, budget deficits shrink during a robust economy, right? When the economy is good, you have more tax revenue coming into the government, and so the government doesn't have to spend as much because there's no crisis going on. So typically, you will see deficits shrink when you have a strong economy. Not now. Biden has managed to ramp up the debt at this staggering rate, even without a recession. So imagine how bad it's going to be when this house of cards economy actually collapses. I can't even fathom what the budget deficits are going to look like. I'm going to link to a couple of articles on uh, the debt, the national debt, in the show notes. Um, I know most people don't really care about the debt because they think it doesn't matter, and it doesn't. 
until it does. So check those articles out. I really like uh, one that I wrote about the uh, the invincibility of the dollar. People think the dollar is invincible, and that's why we can have all of this debt, and there's not going to be a problem. And the dollar's not invincible. One more quick thing I want to cover before I sign off. The Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe, uh, which is abbreviated RBZ, has launched a digital payment system backed by physical gold. The RBZ rolled out this digital gold-backed token in April after successfully implementing a program to produce physical gold coins back in 2022. So a lot of interest in gold in Zimbabwe. So on October 5th, the central bank announced that these gold-backed digital tokens could be used as a method of payment for domestic transactions. The tokens are called Zimbabwe Gold, or Z-I-G, Zig, and uh, it can be stored in a digital e-gold wallet or on e-gold cards. So basically, you can do it like, you know, with your with your phone, or you can actually get a, a a credit card-like thing that has these tokens on them. Each token is backed by an equivalent amount of physical gold held in RBZ's reserves. Uh, so no fractional reserve stuff here. Supposedly, uh, every token is backed by an equal amount of gold. The ZIG can be used in business transactions, or it can be shared peer-to-peer. So in practice, this gold-backed digital currency makes it possible to do everyday business in gold, which I think is fantastic. I wish there were more options to do that here in the United States. Uh, there, there are some options. Uh, for one, Alpine, uh, which is a company out in uh, Utah, they're the ones that make the gold backs. Uh, they also have a, a process where you can um, do transactions using uh, digital gold. But, um, you know, it, it's a way to get away from uh, fiat currency dollars or in Zimbabwe's uh, case, uh, Zimbabwe dollars uh, and, and do transactions in sound money. Now, I'd be more enthusiastic about this if it wasn't run by a central bank, but it's still kind of cool, right? And it shows what can be done. And maybe other people will take up this idea because I think currency competition is absolutely crucial in this day and age. We need to be able to do business in money other than government fiat. And, you know, some people are looking at bitcoins and uh, in other cryptocurrencies, a gold-backed digital currency is another option. I want these things to compete. Let the best thing win in the market. It's not fiat. Um, But currency competition is something we need. And as we move into a future where uh, central banks and governments are going to really be pushing for their own central bank digital currency, I think having alternatives is going to be increasingly important. Gold and silver are money, but the fact that you have to have physical coins especially with gold, makes it difficult to transact business, so we need alternatives. This digital gold is such an alternative. Um, The RBZ central bank governor said the introduction of both the gold coins and the digital gold-backed tokens was intended to incentivize investors to put money into, quote, national assets instead of U.S. dollars. So this is really more de-dollarization, Of course, nobody wants Zimbabwe dollars because they're dealing with hyperinflation again. You know, it's interesting to me that a lot of Americans have this mentality that gold isn't something you want to have during inflationary periods. Um, It's 
increasingly viewed not as an inflation hedge. And if you look at the performance of gold um, and CPI, you can make that argument. But other countries very much view gold as an inflation hedge, people in other countries. And I think the dollar's role as the reserve currency mutes the impact of inflation on the dollar um, and, and its relationship with gold and, and price inflation. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have this widespread belief that the dollar is invincible. It isn't. Every empire has thought the same thing. History tells us otherwise. When fiat currencies collapse, you definitely want to have gold. You're seeing it in Zimbabwe. You see it in other countries. We've seen it in history. The U.S. dollar is not going to be the reserve currency forever. So if you're just holding on to dollars, you're rolling the dice that the dollar is going to be able to keep up, that they'll be able to keep kicking the can down the road, that the road is really, really long and everything's going to be okay. Now, if you don't have faith in the dollar over the long haul, you want to have at least some gold and silver. And you can get it by calling Shift Gold, talking to a precious metal specialist. The number is 1-888-GOLD-160. 888-GOLD-160. Uh, if you don't want to talk on the phone, you can email info at shiftgold.com. Or if you don't want to use email, you can just go to shiftgold.com Go to the Getting Started tab, and you can actually talk to a precious metal specialist in chat online. They'll look at your situation, your portfolio, and they'll help you figure out how precious metals can fit into your strategy. The guys over at Shift Gold are fantastic. They're knowledgeable. You'll have a good conversation, so call them today. It's Friday the 13th. I hope it's not too scary for you. I'm going to cautiously call that a gold wrap for this week. You can get more details on everything that I've talked about today and more. And of course, you can keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com slash news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, we're on YouTube and other places. You can check all of those out. Links on the show notes page, as well as links to our social media channels. You can email me, mmahari, M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y. So mmahari at shipgold.com. Love to hear from folks. Hope you have a fantastic weekend, and I will talk to you again next week.